Glory to God. We're going to be over in a couple of different places. Probably spend most of our time in Romans and a place over in Kings. But we last couple of weeks we've been kind of making a little detour here on the love of God. I'm looking at some things to help us understand how we can walk in that love better. If you were up on Facebook this morning, we talked about difficult people. How many of you have some people in your life that are difficult to love? Well, the Word of God puts those difficult people in the three categories. And we've got to understand what category they're in in order to understand how to deal with them. If you take all the difficult people in your life and put them in one category, you're not going to figure out how to deal with them. But don't think just because they're in a certain category that there's only, uh, it, it's, a, it's a given, this is how you deal with them. It's not. But it will help you understand what is God saying to you in dealing with that person in your life. Because it's up to us to respond to them in the correct way. And so we're going to look in the Word of God at these three different groups of people that are in your life that make loving them difficult. Because the easy people to love are the people who treat you nice, are always kind to you, have good things, good encouraging words from God for you, do nice things. I mean, these are easy people to love in your life. But that's not that doesn't describe all Christians, does it? So we're gonna we're gonna get into some things here to to help us out. Last couple of weeks we looked at how we can have some very strong feelings that can come out of our love for God. Because the more I love God, the more I detest the things that are against God. The more I don't like the things that God doesn't like. And the more I hate the things that God hates. Because the Word of God does say that He hates certain things, doesn't He? So our goal is to make sure that the strong feelings that we have do not come out of a selfish love, but they come out of a godly love. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't have selfish love. And that feelings can come out of that. If you have strong feelings that come out of selfish love, I don't like how I'm being treated. I don't like how they spoke to me. I don't like different things like that. That's going to be coming out of a selfish love. We've got to make sure we stay in the love of God. Last week we finished up our our two weeks we spent in First John 4 and 5. That we need to walk in a place that is habitually loving, not in a, not in the way of habitually hating. Walk in that love. That should be our, our, our standard reaction. Just like we, you know, brought Max up here and threw the ball at him. Just standard reaction. He just caught it. Didn't have to be told. Didn't have to be prepared for it. He just did it. And that's how we ought to go. The love of God is just the reaction. It's just the way that we respond to things. I love because of what's in me, not what others do. That's a hard place for us to get to. So let's get to these three groups of people. These are in your outline for you. You can write them down if you like. Three groups of difficult people that are in your life. First off, and these are the ones you're very familiar with, selfish believers. Believers in our life that act selfishly. They can be difficult to love. And they don't have to be just acting selfishly where they're hurting you. Sometimes they can be acting selfishly and hurting other people. And that can make it difficult for for you to love them. Second group is selfish heathen. They're not born again. They don't know God. They're heathen. And they're selfish. Kind of expect that out of heathen people. But how many of you know some unchurched heathen people that are not selfish? Yeah. 
Just like we can know people in the church who are selfish, there are people outside of the church who are not. You can be selfish and be born again. You just got more work to do. Third category is really easy, vessels of wrath. That's our three. Now, Jesus, Jesus encountered, uh, he had encounters with two, at least he probably encountered all of them, all these uh, groups in the, in the Word of God. But in the Bible, we are only told of his encounters upon two groups of these people. He encountered selfish believers. That was one group that we'll see that he did. I'm putting your outline. Jesus encounters with the second group were few or just not recorded, but he did have many with the first and third. Selfish believers and vessels of wrath. We see him encountering them more than anything else. And so we're going to look to to define these more. We've spent some time on vessels of wrath. Don't have to spend a whole lot of time on that, but we are going to spend some time giving you another example of that. In Romans chapter 9, verse 14, I want to read this to you. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whomever I I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now there are some things that people can do to uh, encounter the mercy of God. There are also some things that you can do that turn off the mercy of God. We saw that in the Old Testament. Judgment came when he came down to Sodom and Gomorrah. He came down to see if it was as bad as it had been reported. Came on down to interact with it and it was as bad. They did not encounter the mercy of God. The place was judged. But we saw from the interaction with Abraham, with the Lord Jesus, on that day called the angel of the Lord, we saw from his interaction that he said, if there are 50 righteous there, will you spare the city for the 50? And he said, yes, I will do that. And he worked his way all the way down to 10 people. You remember the, the story? So he found out that the righteous people buried amongst the unrighteous can, can encounter the mercy of God for those that are unsaved, for those that are uh, worthy of the wrath of God. So that's one way we can see that the mercy of God can be can be accessed. You can access the mercy of God for some people, sometimes. But Abraham got all the way down to 10, and apparently there were not 10 righteous people in the city. So the place was destroyed. The, the judgment of God came upon him. The more we understand the mercy of God, the more I understand how to access it, and the more I know it's it's not here. It's not going to be accessed here. Do you remember a story of, of with Moses when the people, one of the many times they rebelled? And this time was different. Moses said, you, to, said to Aaron, you need to get out amongst the people. The plague has started. He could already tell from, the, from God that the mercy of God was not accessed and that the plague had started. That's how well he knew God. That's how well we need to get to know our God. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, and I may... Sh- that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he has he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to the him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? 
For the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he may make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now we went over this some, t- some weeks before. Just wanted to read it again. The examples we looked at were the example of Pharaoh and Ahab as far as vessels of wrath. And I'm not going to go over them a whole lot right here. Pharaoh was one who was a vessel of wrath and never turned in repentance to that. Ahab was one who was a vessel of wrath, but he did turn and God sent the prophet to him and said, look, it's not going to happen his day. He did repent. But let's take a look at First um, Kings chapter 11, verse 1. And for some reason, I left that out of my my uh, notes up here, so I'll have to read it off the screen. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. It is amazing to me in Israel's history how many times Egypt is involved. Have you ever noticed that? Not only were they involved as far as the um, slavery was, was going on, but Abraham, when things go bad, where does he go? His son, when things went bad, where did he go? Down to Egypt. We constantly see them going down to Egypt and bringing things back from Egypt. It's just that you'll see this all through the, the Old Testament. But anyway, let's go on to verse 2. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Understand this. If Solomon, in all his wisdom, special wisdom granted from God, if he could not resist, don't think you'll do better. (laughs) Stay away. You may... Find someone attractive, but if they are not on the same page with you, they will take you in a different direction. And the end will be be bad. It was for Solomon. Let's go to verse 3. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 700 wives. And then 300 concubines. Those are wives you just didn't go through all the ceremony with. 1,000 women in his life, the majority of whom were not God-fearing, served idols. Hmm. Let's go on. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. Now it says when he was old. So it means that when he was young and fervent for God, they tried to turn his heart, but they did not. But uh, now some of you husbands might be able to attest to this. How many of y'all know that if your wife gets an idea and you say no or you're not on the same page, it doesn't go away? It keeps coming back. A year, two years, three years, four years. They keep coming back with it. They, they don't let it go. How many of y'all know that? The rest of you will learn. So they kept on going with that. They didn't, they didn't let it go. No, I still want to wor- worship Kamosh. I still want to worship Baal. I still want to bring these things. I still want to have my place set up for this. They still kept going after it. He just, um, he fought it for a long time. But when he was old, he stopped fighting it. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. 
For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his wives, foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now understand this. Not only was incredible wisdom given to him, the Lord God appeared to Solomon two times. How many can say the Lord God has appeared? Not not witnessed to you, not gave you a dream, not a vision, nothing like that. Physically appeared to you. How many has God has done that to you twice? <laughs> two times that has happened. Verse going to verse 10. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So understand this. He appeared to him twice. And at least one of those times, if not both of those times, the Lord appeared to him, specifically said, don't get involved with foreign women. They will turn your heart from, he would say me, but he would turn your heart from God. He specifically told him not to do it. Mm. Verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Now, this may not have been one of the appearances. This may have been just a prophet who was given the word and came to Solomon and told him. And we do know that that was in the word of God. There is the encounter that he had with the prophet. And this was told. Verse 12. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now the Lord raised up an adversity against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain that he had killed every male in Edom. We're not going to go over uh, all the the details there. You can go through and and look at this yourself. But um, Solomon had an adversary raised up by God. Now, if God appeared to Solomon two times, how many of you would say that he was probably a vessel of mercy? But if God is going to stir up people against you, to be an adversary against you, how many would say that is not a vessel of mercy? He's not getting mercy, is he? He's getting judgment. Solomon went from being a vessel of mercy to being a vessel of wrath. Isn't that sad? He led the children of Israel to stop worshiping God and to worship idols. He brought that idolatrous worship in. He's the man who built the great temple. Spent all this money on the house of God. And yet, he then went and built all these other places too. For all these other 
foreign gods. So that's Solomon. He had an adversary that was raised up against him. Now, if you were in Solomon's day and you were a believer and you saw Hadad coming against Solomon and you thought, this is God's anointed. I will come against him. And you you went out to stand against Hadad and whatever he was doing against Solomon and the kingdom. You could think you're doing the work of God. But if God dispatched him in whatever way he dispatched him, would you not also be fighting against God? All right, just keep that in mind. Let's go on over here to verse 26, same chapter. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerada, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man of Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor, all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment. And there were two alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me, worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Kamosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and have kept my statutes and my judgments as did his father. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of the son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son, I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself, to put my name there. So I will take you, you shall reign over all your heart's desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, If you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you, build for you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So once again... Where does the one who's anointed by God run and flee to? Egypt Egypt is involved again. Now let's just take a summary of all this. Jeroboam has a word of God spoken to him. The ten tribes were going to be given to him. And the reasons why the tribes were taken from the house of David are given. And the reasons were because they've gone after this God. They went after this God. And they went, he named the gods they went after. And they have not kept my laws. They have not kept my commandments as David had done. So, I'm going to put you in this position. And if you follow after my commandments and do my will, then I will establish your house, is what he tells them. Now, in order for Jeroboam to come into this place, and he 
and, and receive all this. Is Jeroboam a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy? Undoubtedly, he's a vessel of mercy. God is entrusting him with the northern kingdoms because of what he has shown in the past. He's been very industrious, but not just that, he had to show a heart that was after God. We know that's what attracted him to David. He's looking for a man after his own heart. Jeroboam must have been a man after God's own heart at one point. And so he pursued him, pursued God. And so uh, he was told it's going to happen in the days of his son. And so he fled on down to Egypt and he waited there until Solomon died. And when Solomon died, he came back. Verse 26 of the next chapter. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. Well, I skipped over that part. You can read over those those parts. I'll, I'll just summarize it for you here. He came on up and they uh, asked Rehoboam, Will you lighten the load? And he said, after three days, he came back and said, Nope, I'm going to make it even harder for you. And so they said, Well, forget it. We're done with the house of David. And the ten northern tribes went north. And they took Jeroboam and they made him their king. Just like the prophet had said. He had no sooner become king, just became king. And God told him when he would become king that what was, he had, what was it he had to do? It was pretty simple. Do what God commanded. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. Is that not directly against the word of God? Didn't God say, I will make your house I will do this. But he's afraid of the people. Where does he get that thought from? Does not the enemy come in and sow thoughts to us? Well, God's not going to come through. God's not going to help you in this. You're on your own. And he came up with this idea. If you'll do this, that may not happen. When God said, if you follow after my commands, this is what will happen. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. So one's all the way up in the north, one's always down in the south. Now this thing became a sin for the people, went out to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and every priest from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel sacrifice to the calves that he made, and at Bethel he installed the priests on the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month in the, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifice on the altar and burned incense. So this is how we, we go. We, uh, we don't just veer off from God all of a sudden. We veer off a little bit here and once that's okay then we veer off a little bit here and then we veer off a little bit here and then more and more goes. And so people... Instead of just doing what the Word of God has said. This is how you worship God. This is what you do with the getting the Word in you. This is what you do in keeping His commands. This is how you demonstrate your love for God. All these things, we just kind of put them out. And I just begin to come up with my own ideas of what to do. We see this all the time. And in churches, 
that people come up with their own ideas of how we will follow after the things of God. We come up with our own ideas of, of some funny ways of worship, some funny ways of the gifts of the Spirit. We put some things that are under God's control under our control. We take some things that are under our control and try and put it under God's control. And we start messing it all up because we get away from the Word of God. And so he became a vessel of wrath and God sent judgment to him. You can go back through and read all those chapters if it's uh, anything new to you. I haven't read over for a while. <clears throat> but destruction came to the house of Jeroboam because he did not do what God said to do. And he became a vessel of wrath. When you encounter a vessel of wrath, whether you have a vessel of wrath at work, in your family, in your neighborhood, special friend who started out good, but they started going down the wrong path. And you have a vessel of wrath in your, in your circle. You gotta be careful you don't start intercepting the hey dads in their life. The things that God has sent to bring them back. Because in the end, Solomon does come back to God. Jeroboam does not. Pharaoh does not. Ahab did for a time, but it seemed like at the end he, he went away from it again. Now I put this in your outline for you. If God gets, and well, let's, let's cover this. Here's a, I gave you one more example. The other example I gave you here is the end times. What happens in the end times? God's wrath is poured out on people. And he starts wiping out some folks because of the things they had done to cover up the truth. They intentionally went to cover up the truth. Even though they saw the hand of God, they wouldn't admit it. They kept attributing to other things. So if God gets angry at these and sends hardship and adversaries, does he do so for a purpose? So just think, just answer that part of right now. In your head, just answer this part. If God gets angry at these people, Solomon, Jeroboam, people in the end times, you can list other people as well, but we're just going with those. And he sends hardship or he sends adversaries. Does he do so with a purpose? In the book of Revelation, when it talks about the, the, uh, the bowls being poured out, the trumpets, the seals, does it not often say, and yet they did not repent from their ways. So the purpose of those things coming was to show that He is God and that they should repent. But for the most part, it did not. So God had a purpose there. He had a purpose with sending those things into Solomon's camp. He had a purpose for sending those things to Jeroboam to try and get them to turn back and become a vessel of mercy again. But they didn't do it. So if God gets angry and sends at, at these and sends hardship and adversaries, does he do so for a purpose or so we can soften their effect? Does God send adversaries into people like Solomon's life so that we can soften the effect of them? Now, in these ones, we can certainly see, no, God doesn't want us to soften the effect. He wants that to come out. But how many people do we have in our, our lives we have people that are vessels of wrath, may have been a vessel of mercy, moved over into a vessel of wrath. And bad things have happened in their life. They've lost their job. Finances have gotten out of control. And because we still see them as a vessel of mercy, 
We want to extend mercy to them. And so we go and we take our money that we're believing God for. We've asked God for and we take that and we put it into their lives to help them. Because we think that's the Christian thing to do. Right? Well, I can't, I can't bear to see people suffer like this. Um, so I'm just going to be there to, you know, to, to help them out. Now you got to be careful. If God has sent things into their life for the purpose of bringing them back, I'm not called to soften the blow. Now I put in you here the, the, the response. For all three of these, we're going to give you a response. The response is, I should not get in the way except to intercede in prayer. Don't get in the way. If God sent it, if God's hand is in it, that no, no, you, I either allowed that or I sent it. Then don't get in the way. Understand, recognize that God sent certain things. God did certain things. Or they opened up the way for the enemy to get in. And I need to step back. That's a hard thing for us to do. Because we're trained in, oh, well, we don't like suffering. Ah, uh, God doesn't want to see people suffer. Look at these examples we got right here. Did Pharaoh suffer under the hand of God? He did, didn't he? Yeah. Did Ahab suffer under the hand of God? Yeah. Did Solomon suffer under the hand of God? Yeah. Hmm. Did Jeroboam suffer under the hand of God? Yeah. So is God okay with suffering? Well, he'd prefer blessing, but if you put yourself in a place where you're going to be a vessel of wrath, then something else is going to be coming your way. Let's go on and look at some of these others because I want you to be able to differentiate between these and the next two. And this is selfish believers. First Corinthians chapter three, verse one. And, bre- and I, brethren, could not speak to you as the spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Hmm. Now, another verse of Scripture, I didn't write it down in here for us to, to go to, but the Word of God says that where there is envy and strife, there is confusion and every evil work. Paul is writing this to some people who are carnal. They're not supposed to be, but they are. The intention Paul has is to give them something different, but he cannot because they're not ready for it. They are a group of Christians who are in a place that they should not be. I labeled them as selfish believers, but you could also call them carnal Christians. Now don't write, don't, uh, I'm sure none of you here are, are that, but how many of you know a carnal Christian? Only Naz. Boy, that's, okay, we got a couple more. <laughs> I, we, we know some carnal Christians. We know some Christians who are selfish. We know some Christians that are caught up in the wrong things. Now, it's against their newborn nature to act this way, but that's the way they're acting. They act on their own self-interest, either exclusively or primarily. Carnal Christians, selfish Christians, act on their own self-interest, either exclusively 
or primarily. Now the examples in the Word shows us that we are not to let that go, that go on unaddressed. When Jesus saw carnal Christians, did He just tap them on the shoulder? Oh, keep going. I know things will get better for you. He didn't do that, did He? He would address it with them. He would speak to them because He knows that they're going in that direction. It's not going to be a good thing. Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. Hey guys, you shouldn't be in this state. Get out of it. You are carnal Christians. Oh, but if I say that, I'll offend people. Well, apparently God is not afraid of offending people in that. Neither is Paul. Pretty sure Peter wasn't either. And look at some of the things that James wrote. I don't think he was he was affected by offending people who were carnal Christians. I mean, James flat out calls them and says, if you're walking this way, man, you're not his. John, the same thing. So they act on their own self-interest. My response to carnal Christians is that I should identify selfish behavior. You've got to identify the selfish behavior. You've got to spot the selfish behavior. You've got to pick up that it's selfish behavior. And you need to be able to pinpoint it. Now, don't try and do it in a way to embarrass them. First off, try and get them privately and address it with them. But if they're not listening, you may have to get to a place where you speak a little bit more in front of people. To get them to quit it. To get them to, to, to quit doing that. I think I've shared this story. I wouldn't share this story a whole lot, but you know, I was kind of new in the, in the ministry thing and, and I was taking over a youth group and I was leading this, this youth group and, uh, one of the things you want to do in this, I, 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 I don't know, this might come as a surprise to you. Um, but I'll tell you anyway. I'm not a social bug. I'm just not really a, a real, a big social bug. I, um, never was. In fact, I'm probably more so now than I ever was in my, in my past. I mean, I, my mom would tell me often, you can ask her after the service, she'll tell you. She said, if you put Steve in a room by himself, he'd be happy. And I, I would be. I, you put me in a room by myself, I'd be happy. If you put me in a room with other people, well, now we're, now we're questionable. I, I like being by myself more. And I've gotten past that. I've been, gotten to where I can enjoy people and that I enjoy people. I can be in a room by myself and be happy and I can be in a room with people and be happy too. I'm not unhappy. If people all leave me and I'm by myself, I'm still happy. If they all come back, I'm still happy. I don't get bothered by that. But it didn't used to always be that way. I was much happier by myself than I was with, with, with other people. But um, when I took over being the youth group, you know, one of the things you got to do with youth is you got to make them do things together. And um, I wasn't real good at that. So I was trying to get other people involved in doing all the things that I'm not good at. Because there was a lot of things I wasn't good at. I tried to get other people to do that. So one of the things I was trying to recruit somebody for was to be over the social aspect of what the youth group would do, the fun things that they would go out there and, and that they would do. Now, if you know the, my wife and I, my wife is the, the social coordinator of things. If you want to have fun things to do, she's the one to talk to. Now, you get older, her, she'll find some fun things to do. She'll adjust it to the age and who's coming and such, you know, such things like that. Um, I don't do very well at that. But anyway, she does, so that's, that's good. But I was trying to recruit some other people for this particular purpose. And so there was one person that I recruited very, very hard 
in this area trying to pull her in to, to do this. She needed it because she was uh, not a real strong Christian. We're trying to get them to be a strong Christian. They, they wanted to pursue the things of God, but just were pursuing other things and just uh, trying to get them focused in on the things of God. So I figured this would be a good way to get them involved. And so I pursued and pursued and pursued and she kept him and hauling. And finally, I just gave up and I went after it and got somebody else. And they jumped at it and they took over and I, I think they did a fine job. I don't even remember who it was that I got instead to, to take over. But anyway, I remember this part very, very clear. We were all, uh, this particular youth group, we had Sunday morning and Sunday night service. And so what would happen, uh, in between came under my guise of, um, of the youth leader, was that the youth stayed at church after the morning service until the evening service. I had them all day. I had them from the time that they got there all the way through in the afternoon and then into the evening service. Now, it was kind of a good thing because half of the evening service was populated by the youth group. So that's one of the reasons they kept the evening service going. They had so many of the youth group that was that was there and they would come on out. So this is the thing that we did. Uh, I didn't start it. I wouldn't have started it. But uh, if it started, I was already going on. So I just kind of kept it going. And so we'd all find a place to go out to lunch. Some of the people had cars. People had cars would take people who didn't have cars. We'd drive out to a place. We'd get some lunch. We'd come on back. And then we would do things at the church for the entire afternoon. Well, one of these times we were sitting up in the front of the pews in the in the church. And there's, a, I don't know, about 20 of them all together. And among these was this one girl that I was trying to recruit for this position. And so we... Um, uh, made mention, somehow we got onto that topic. And she made, I didn't make, I didn't bring it up. She did. She made the comment. She says, yeah, Steve was trying to get me to do that. And, uh, I, I didn't agree to it. He got, no, she, no, he, Steve was trying to get me to do that. And he got so and so to do it instead. And, and so without even thinking, it just came up down from the inside of me and I just blurted it out. Cause if I gave it any thought, I probably wouldn't have said it. <laughs> didn't give it any, just kind of came up on the inside of me and I just blurted out and said yeah at least she did it she got so mad at me for that comment because it embarrassed her and it kind of pinpointed that uh, yeah I tried to get you to do this and you just wouldn't, you wouldn't go ahead and do it she stormed out of the church and went off to something and I stayed right where I was didn't go anywhere. Now, that, you would think that might be it, but that wasn't. We had service that night. And after the service, this person was still upset. <laughs> and so um, my car is parked in the uh, right near the front of the church. And this person was out by the, the this particular church had a pond. She was out by the pond under the light. There was one light on the pond under the light so she could be seen. I'm sure it was just so she could be seen. And so I could see she's out there sulking all by herself. And so I saw her out there. And I was the last one to leave. I'm almost always the last one to leave the church. I was the first one to arrive. And I was the last one to leave. My days on Sundays at that particular time, I would start at around 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. And I'd get home somewhere around midnight. I was there at church the entire day. And... um uh, so I saw her standing over there, and there was no way I was walking out there to where she was. So I walked out to my car. I opened the car. This is the old-fashioned days. We had to stick a key in the lock and actually turn it. You can't just push a button. Stuck the key in there, turned the thing. 
And as I got the car open, I shouted out and said, and I said her name. I said, see you later. And I got in the car and left. Now, see, sometimes when you find Christians that are acting selfishly, you have to expose it. You have to aggravate it. You have to do some things to get them to deal with it. And uh, now she did eventually did make some comfort. I have no idea where they are now. I, I, you kind of hope that the things turn around, but you know, you just don't you don't know. Sometimes you got to take people that are selfish and are doing selfish things, and um, you have to deal with it. You have to be kind of stern with the thing, because we can act selfishly and not not do the thing that that we needed to do. It would have helped her if she would have done what I'd asked her to do. It would have helped her spiritually. It would have helped her grow. But she decided not to do it. Now, see, sometimes when we, we've been looking at those things, we say, well, I just, can't, I just can't embarrass people like that. Does God ever say things that embarrass people? Let me, let me bring you over to one. David, you're the man. Is that embarrassing? How about this one? See if you can think, who who was this said to? Get behind me, Satan. Do you think that was embarrassing? (laughs) How about when he, he called them whitewashed? Was that embarrassing? How about when the Pharisees were, were called, I think John called them that. He said, you made your followers twice as fit for hell as you are yourselves. Was that embarrassing? Yeah, you see, the Word of God is not about keeping you unembarrassed. He'll try and deal with it on a, on a private level first. But if he can't, he will bring it out in the open. Because he's more concerned with your future than with your present. If your present is messing up your future. So he'll speak some of these things. So you have to be willing to do this. Not everybody's willing to do it. Not everybody is willing to, to, to take these steps. And so when those things come up on the inside of you to speak to someone then you need to you need to speak them you need to say these things because the whole purpose is to is to help them i'm sure i've shared this story with you before too but there was a there was an event we used to take the the, the kids to the youth group too it was called our creation uh the creation festivals that were that were going on and so we would every year we would i would take 30 20, 25 to 30 young kids put them in a bus and i'd have them for the three days. They were under my care. I watched over them. I made sure that they were safe and so forth. And um, So I'm not going to give you all the ins and outs of, about how I inherited it and what was going on before because there were some bad stuff going on before. So we gave them rules to be followed. You think the you think Moses' rules were tough. You didn't see mine. <laughs> I, I gave them some rules and pages. They had to sign it and say they would do it. And then after the end, I told them what the infraction penalty was. If you break the rule, this is what will happen. If you break it again. Now, I wasn't, I didn't have a whole lot of patience back then with the stuff. It's just, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, if you did it, it's over. <laughs> but I did extend a little bit of mercy because my, my way of doing this thing was I would have just said, if you broke the rules, you're on a bus, you're going home. That's it. I already mapped out where the bus station was, how we would get them there. And I let them know, if you mess up, that's how it's going to be. But we, we gave them a, a step. If you mess up the first time, I told them, 
you will be chained to a counselor. Someone will know where you are. Not me. It was not going to be me. But someone was going to watch over you all the time you were there. If you broke a rule after that, you're on a bus, you're home, you're out. And they knew I meant it. Now, these rules were so tough that (laughs) half the group rebelled. Half of the group rebelled. Half the group said, we're not going with you. We're going to go on ourselves. I said, that's fine. When it comes to eating time, you don't come near our camp. You don't eat our food. You don't come near our our tents. uh, And we don't give any of you a ride there or back. You are on your own. Don't even talk to us. And so after after a few weeks, they finally said, this is too tough. We can't put all this together. We'll come along with you. And so we got them all back together. And they were, they were coming. But I had rules in there like all, all the events, you had to attend all the events. That's where we're going. We're going for the events. We had curfews and, and, uh, you know, a bunch of normal stuff like that. But of course, one of the things that was on there was that, um, girls and guys could not go off by themselves together. Well, that's the only one that was tested. And this one particular girl, went off with a guy who was she was dating who was much older who did not come with us as a group but apparently went out on his own. And so she um, uh, got together with him and they went off somewhere and no one knew where they were. So um, now, do you extend mercy? I mean, they, she came on down as a girl, came on down and sat there and she's crying. She got caught. You know, she's crying. Tears. I mean, tears just pouring down. And um, I just, you know, it's a mess sat him down and said, all right, did you not understand the rules? No, I understood the rules. Did you go off it? Yeah, I did. All right, what does the rule say is the penalty for this? Well, you said that I would be chained to somebody. And so she had a friend. One of the counselors we had was a very close friend of hers. And I said, fine, you are chained to this one. If I ever come and ask her where you are and she doesn't know, you are on a bus and you're going home. Is that clear? Tears pouring down her face, just upset, crying, the whole whole thing. I didn't back off at all. There was not a single tear shed in my face. There's nothing. I had no sympathy for it at all. And so um, we eventually got over this thing. And I was tough with her. I didn't I didn't back down. I was tough with her. I, I told her this is this is how it is. I mean, you really broke the rules. I really feel like they're sending you home now. But this is what I said I would do. So I'm going to give you this this chance. And I didn't find this out until days later. I didn't even know when it was. But sometime later, the counselor that she was chained to came to me and said, do you know that she spoke to me shortly after you left? And these are the words she said. I wish my dad would have that much love for me. Nearly floored me. Really? That's what she said? Oh, Wow. But you see, when someone acts in a selfish way, you are not being godly by letting it go. You got to deal with it right away. You got to get right in their face and quit and get them to quit it because selfishness will take them down a wrong path. Now, I can tell you other stories and like that, but that's enough of those, uh, those kind of stories. There are Christians who are still giving over to the old nature. It is your job to help them get past. If you're, if you're, hopefully you're over. (laughs) 
Here's our response. I should identify selfish behavior. Call it out. Speak to it. If they don't listen to you in private, see, we did this with this girl in private. The uh, the counselor I was going to chain her to was there because I needed her to hear the whole conversation because I knew who she was going to be chained to, so to speak. And so it was just the three of us that were in there having that conversation. But let me take you over here to verse uh, 1 of Romans chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? Now, if you have your bulletin with you, look at the cover. See, one of the things that I do is uh, when we're making things ready in the morning is I, I look for some kind of a um, art that someone has done that I can put together and put it in the bulletin that comes in line with some of the scriptures that we're using. And so I saw, this is the one of the ones that came up when I was doing a search. And I looked at that and I said, I was looking for a scripture. How many read that and say, I, what is that verse? What is that? I don't remember. I read that and said, I don't remember that verse in the Bible. And so I went back and I looked it up. And of course it says, it tells you right there, it's in the message translation. Let me read you this entire four verses from the message translation. Now, we don't have that for the back over there, but just keep the New King James up and you can follow along and see how... I I thought they really did a nice job with these four verses. Verse 1. Those people are on a dark spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on high ground where you can point your fingers at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all your such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. All right, now you ready for the, these verses? You don't think, you don't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings? And from coming down on you hard. Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he lets you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. And then we have verse 4. God is kind, but he's not soft. Boy, I like that. (laughs) God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. Here's the problem. There are some Christians who resist the radical life change. They hang on to the old nature. They hang on to the selfishness. And God is leading them away from it. Things happen in their life to get them to be distracted from that way of life into the God kind of life. And then if we as Christians come over and instead of complimenting what God is doing in their life, we counteract it. We're not helping them. 
See, there are selfish Christians and there are selfish heathens. Selfish Christians, you need to identify you are in a selfish state. Selfish heathen, heathens, you need to let them know you are following after an entirely wrong nature because you are of that wrong nature. Let's continue on verse verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, here's what comes for them, indignation and wrath. That's what will come their way. Not glory, honor, and immortality. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, and in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So even those who say they haven't heard, the Word of God tells us they have heard. The Word of God has been has been shown to them. They can see it in the things around them. But in some people, they just want to deny it. And, and, and such they do. That is not going to put them in a place for mercy. Nor should it put them in a place for mercy from you. There are three groups of people. There are people that are selfish heathen. These are people that are unsaved. They're selfish. They're not necessarily a vessel of wrath yet. But they are, they are selfish. And they're going down in a direction to become a vessel of wrath. Your goal is to find them and to turn them back. Our response to people that are heathen. Well, let me, before we get into that, let me read you a couple of the verses. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People who suppress the truth. You see, you're, you're of a nature that when you see truth, you want to you want to bring it to light. But there are people in this world who find truth and desire to suppress it because they may know they because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. They have seen it. New Century Version puts these two verses this way: God's anger is shown from heaven against all the evil and wrong things people do. By their own evil lives, they hide the truth. God shows His anger because some knowledge of Him has been made clear to them. Yes, God has shown Himself to them. There is not a soul on this earth who has not had some knowledge of God exposed to them. And how they respond to it is what God judges them on. Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That is our state we were born in, sold under sin. That is the state of the people in the world. They are sold under sin. Romans 8, 
Verse 7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You cannot deal with the symptoms. You must deal with the root. Put this in your outline for you. Their nature must be changed. You must take a heathen and change their nature. Change their nature. And that's where the response comes from. I should direct them in a way of a change, changed inner nature and quit trying to change the outer one. Have you ever seen people that are heathens and they, they work around Christians and they start cussing? And the Christian says, will you please not do that around me? Will you? And then we try and get them to change their behavior. Changing their behavior won't change their destiny. We have to change their nature. Now, I like the way another person dealt with that instead of just asking them to change their nature. Uh, I forget who it was that told me the thing, but whenever somebody was, would uh, start out cussing, they'd, start, they'd just go into praising God. Glory, hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to be His name. And they, and they would bother the heathen who were cussing. They say, hey, as long as you can give glory to the devil, I'll give glory to God. So now, instead of telling you know, alter your behavior, I'm just telling you, if you're going to go with that behavior, I'm going with this behavior. I say that's a much better way of doing it. I forget who it was who, who, who shared with me that did that. It sounds like, you know, something that Jesse would do. <laughs> But there's one of those guys, Jerry Savelle, Jesse, one of them, one of them guys who did that. Um, yeah, but, but find other ways like that. See, we want to try and get them to change their actions. No, we got to get them to change their nature. You see, if you run into somebody and they cuss, how many have ever had this happen? They know you're a Christian and they cuss. Oh, I'm sorry. I says, oh, that's all right. You can cuss around me all the time. That's not sending you to hell. You were born in sin. That's what's sending you to hell. You got to take care of that. See, bring it back down to the nature. And God will give you inspiration down on the inside of you. It'll come up in your spirit. And you'll be able to speak these things out. But you've got to have the boldness to speak it. With heathens, selfish heathens, you've got to change their nature. With selfish Christians, you've got to get them turned on to the new nature that's already in them and following after it. When you're dealing with vessels of wrath, you've got to deal with them the same way God does. And he's, he's strong. He's pointed. You guys are in a direction of destruction. And he spoke to them that way. So identify the people that are in your life that are difficult to love and respond to them the way we see it. It's responding to word. I put this in your outline for your last blank, I think. If I only do what I am comfortable with, if the only thing I do when I am dealing with people in one of these three categories if all I do is what I am comfortable with, well, I'm not comfortable speaking like that. I'm not comfortable pointing that out. I, that's not really me. I'm not the, the type who would do that. Uh, God needs to find somebody else. If all I am willing to do is what I am comfortable with, how is that not selfish? How is it not selfish? And if it is selfish, then am I not walking in a selfish type of love, which is not the God kind of love, which has all kinds of other cascading effects. I have got to get myself to a place where I am willing to speak the truth 
no matter the problem or that it will bring after that. God gave me that truth. It came up in my spirit and I will speak it out. They may not respond. Just because you speak what God gave you does not mean that they will respond. Just in the examples we looked here today, Solomon eventually did respond and came back. Jeroboam did not and did not go back. Despite the prophets that were sent to him and the people who spoke to him. And you can go through the word of God and you can find others that the same thing happened. Some did and some did not. Just because they did not respond does not mean you miss God. But if you act selfishly, I'm not going to speak that because that's not who I am. You're not going to help them. Now here's the thing. You will hear all sorts of stuff. Strong, stern warnings from people as long as you are sure that they love you. Whatever is born of love, people will receive it. But sometimes we just want to spit out the truth. Well, you're going to hell. There's no, there's no love. There's no help in any of that. That's not how God, how God does things. But it will come up on the inside of you. What to do? He'll show you. Don't just feel like when you got these three groups of people in your life and they're aggravating you, that you just got to sit there and take it. That's not God. God wants you to deal with it. God wants you to speak to them. How you'll speak to one in this, in the same group, how you speak to one selfish Christian is not the same way you're going to speak to another selfish Christian. He's going to come up with a different word for you for that one. To help out that one. Remember Jesus with the woman at the, uh, who's brought, caught in adultery? And he's, uh, ministering to her after all the accusers leave. What's he say? Where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Now that's not the same word he would give to everybody. Other people who were caught in sin, he didn't say the same things to. He listened to his spirit. Listen to your spirit. God is going to speak some things to you to help you in dealing with these these folks. But when you follow after God and you do what comes up in your spirit, you're not frustrated anymore. You're not aggravated by these people. And these people are not seeking you out or trying to aggravate you. They're saying, man, be careful. You get around that one. <laughs> but after a while, they're going to see that that's the words of truth. And they're going to come over and they're going to confide in you some more. They're going to want to hear the things that you have to say. Because you spoke the truth, but you spoke it in love. Because it came out of the love of God. Not out of a selfish love. See, some people will rebuke people. Quit doing that because that bothers me. It's a selfish love. But I need to speak to them. Quit following after that nature. It's taking you away from the things of God. And when I come after from this point of view, not from a selfish one, when I come after it from this, it is so much easier that once I dealt with it and moved on, I don't, I don't have any anchors back to that. It's not bringing me back. Oh, remember when they did this to you? Remember how they did this to you? I'm not bothered by all that. I let it go. When they come up to me and they ask me for forgiveness, it's a piece of cake to do. Because at the moment, I dealt with it. I spoke what God said. And then I moved on. And that's how we have to go. Oh, I'll tell you what, it's a much easier way to live the love of God. When you deal with the things He tells you to deal with, and then just move on. 
You don't have any anchors back to those things, what people did to you, how they hurt you, how they affected you. You dealt with it and you moved on. Would you all stand up with me? Today's our communion Sunday. Our ushers are coming, coming forward with the elements. As they come around, you all know what to do. We have one of the greatest acts of love in what Jesus did. Remember his words to the, when he was up there on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the consequences. They don't know the plan of God. They don't know what they're doing. And he said, forgive them. I don't know if you always think about this, but when we all get to heaven, and heaven is pop, in fact, even right now, heaven is populated and filled with people who were at the cross, people who beat Jesus, people who ridiculed him. Because you see, some of those people got saved afterwards. When, in the way that Jesus died, we saw in the Word of God that it says, some of the soldiers says, truly this was the Son of God. So up until that point, they hadn't had a life change. But then after that, they did. Can you imagine being in heaven? And you go up to, and you see Jesus in the holes in his hand. And you think, I was one of the ones who nailed that. I, I, I was assigned the right, the right hand. I actually put the nails in that hand. That hole in the side, I was the one who drove the spear. Now think about this. Every time Jesus came up to them and they're in heaven because of what he did. There's no animosity from Jesus. There's no anchor back to the past. I remember what you did. Because he dealt with it right then. And if Jesus could deal with that right then and never have any repercussions of it in the future, then we can do the same thing. He will show you how to deal with the difficult people in your life right then. You'll speak the things that need to be spoken and you'll go on and you'll be done. It won't keep haunting you because you said what you need to be said. We take part of communion together. Let's remember, boy, the greatest example we have of love is Jesus Christ, how he operated in this world. And even right now, how many people are in heaven who lined the streets throwing abuses at Jesus? How many people were in the crowd saying, crucify him, give us Barabbas? And yet they're in heaven because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. If Jesus can get past all that, I sure know I can. There is nothing that anyone can do to me in this world that is greater than what happened to my Savior. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, 
this do in remembrance of me. Before supper started, he passed the bread around and each one partook. Let's partake together. Then happened after, after supper. Jesus took the cup and he said, this represents the blood of the new covenant. His blood shed for us. We don't have to keep sacrificing bulls, oxen, sheep. His blood is all we need. Let's remember the blood of Jesus every time the devil tries to get us to think there's something else we must do. Something else I must add. There's nothing else we need to add. No, re- no remorse. No penance. We just accept what Jesus did. Let's remember that today as we drink. Glory to God. I like that song, Brother Nikolai. <laughs> Father, what an example of love you gave us in your son, Jesus. The way he walked, the way he dealt with people. He could read where people were and deal with them accordingly to help them get past the issues. Stop them from moving forward. The people that are in our life that are not moving forward, they're staying heathen, they're staying carnal Christians not getting out of being a vessel of wrath. Father, you can speak words to us that we can speak to them. So as the disciples prayed for boldness, Father, I pray for boldness for us. That we would speak the words of life, that we would speak the words that need to be said, that we would speak words that would cause change in the lives of these people. That they would not stay in the state that they are. They would move on to become spirit-led Christians. Christians who follow after the leading of the Spirit of God. There is kindness in all their actions and their words. There is long-suffering. All the traits that we see in in the Word of God, they can be turned into those. And you can use us to help them. I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Glory to God. Marguerite, you're closing us out today? Do you have the... Oh, Brother Victor's got him. Okay. It's awesome to be in the presence of God, and um, we thank God for the word today, and thank God for his servant that he has used to bless us with the word. Um, Like we read last week, whenever we come into God's presence, the word of God cleanses us from spots and wrinkles, and uh, it was so direct and um, uh, full with blessings this morning. So thank you, Pastor, for (coughs) giving yourself to the Lord to bless us every morning Um, as we gather here in his presence. 
uh, one of the things he spoke that was so striking was, um, you know, how Solomon and Jeroboam started as vessels of mercy and ended as vessels of um, wrath. Um, they allowed the wisdom of man to come in at a point in their lives. They wanted to help God accomplish the things that God himself said he was going to do. Um, in Proverbs 3 verse 5, the scripture tells us that trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your understanding, but in all your ways do what? Acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So as we go into this week, let's trust God and not our wisdom. Let's have all our hope and everything uncalled on the things he has spoken concerning us. Amen. Quickly take our praise and prayer report. They are so awesome. We have a lot of wonderful testimonies this morning. Daryl said, God showed me great favor this week, and it had a spillover effect into the lives of those around me. Amen. Amen. And God spoke to Abraham. He said, I will bless you and make you a blessing, and whoever blesses you shall be blessed. So that is exactly what our brother is experiencing in his life. Amen. But Anna said, not for the lack of faith, but I thought I would still be driving my uh, 1996 uh, Subaru, right? Uh, while still paying for our Honda Accord. It didn't look good to take on two car payments at the same time. But it's been about five months since we did purchase my new certified Honda CRV car as used here. Yeah. He's working it out. Amazing. Wow. God is a funny God. Hallelujah. Thank God for that testimony. And I have one here that is so powerful uh, from Sister Susan. I say six weeks ago, I discovered a lump on my gums. My dentist said it was an infection. If it didn't go away within um, the with the antibiotics he prescribed, I uh, will need to get either a root canal or special gum treatment. It didn't go away. An appointment was made for October 30th uh, for an x-ray. I had the x-ray, but knew I was missing it somewhere. I got prayer at the church and still saw no change in my condition. I'd been listening to one of uh, Mary Blackwell's CDs multiple times and recalled how he dug in and declared he was believing the word because it was true. When I went back to the dentist on Tuesday, you know what happened? The lump was totally gone. Hallelujah. Say, so thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know, it was Psalm 20, verse 6. Let me just read what, what David said. He said, Now that, now know I that the Lord saved his anointed. Amen. He will hear him from his holy heaven. With the saving strength uh, of his right hand. Then verse 7 said, Some will trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And that name has brought deliverance to our sister. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. We share in that testimony and believe that every one of us here that is trusting God for something specific, you know, God is going to do it. That was what um, Sister Connie started, you know, sharing with us this morning answers to prayers, you know, because our God is faithful. Amen. 
um, I have this one, the prayer for Brother George Brooks, right? Okay. Uh, the prayer request is that um, he needs salvation and um, healing. Uh, apparently he has a stroke, right? Okay. All right.